0: Welcome to the Camera Shake Podcast, episode 67. And of course, we're back in our respective homes, thanks to COVID. Thank you very much. Anyway, today uh, we have another special guest. But before we get into that, uh, let me just tell you that you can um, see our lovely faces on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash camera shake if you are listening to the audio version of this. If not, if you're already on YouTube, just hit that subscribe button, you'll like the thing and all of that kind of stuff that people usually tell you to do. You know what it's like. Um, anyway, without further ado, we have another super special guest on the show today. Please give it up for Mr. Colby Brown, landscape, travel and humanitarian photographer, photo educator, the founder of The Giving Lens and the master of photographic storytelling. Colby, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, to have this conversation. Excellent. Thank you so much, uh, so much for coming. Uh, we've explained this last week, but you know, we were meant to be together, Nick and me, in the same place, but you know
1: It's COVID, age. man. Think, things get weird.
2: It, yeah. it is
0: what it is, right? Exactly, exactly. Damn, how is it? Damn
2: UK for following the rules.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. damn <laughs> us for following the rules. Yeah, so you know. This is you know, we make we make the best out of it. That's that's how we get through this, you know. Absolutely. How how things over where you are? It's interesting.
1: Um, I mean, we have the Delta variant going around a bit crazy, kind of like which you guys are dealing with as well. But I think most Americans these days are kind of fed up with, you know, listening to science and, you know, health advisors and things like that. So we're kind of like acting like it's nothing, not a big deal. Um, But I think there's kind of a rude awakening coming in. But I don't know. I guess we'll see what happens over the next month or two. But I don't know. It's it's weird for me. I I just got back from Iceland. So I was in Iceland for a month. And Iceland's one of the few countries, I think, at least that's kind of like handled COVID well, like they Mm shut down. They had contract tracing. like They did everything. They're a mm. small country, as I'm sure you guys know. Um, so it was maybe easier for them to, to combat. And so going there, re- vaccines are required to, to enter the country. They just opened up. So I was able to be around everywhere without a mask, without worry, because everyone's been tested and PCR tests and all that stuff. And then coming back to the US where it's like starting to rage again, but people aren't wearing masks anymore. So it, the dichotomy is a bit strange for sure uh, over this last week trying to get back used to being back here in the
0: States. But uh, as we said, it it is what it is. Yeah. I was actually going to talk to you about this because my daughter um, is going on a school trip to Iceland Mm -hmm. uh, in February with her um, uh, geography class. And uh, it's been postponed from from last year because obviously it didn't happen. Uh, But she's, and I think it's supposed to be February. So she's really worried that she might not be able to go obviously, because of, you know, because of lockdowns and stuff. Um, what's your sort of sense? Do you think do you think that's going to be possible for or not?
1: I think it'll be possible. I mean, it, it, obviously, it's going to determine, like, what's happening this fall and winter to, to how, how much we get a handle on this. Like, right now, we're going through something we haven't gone through because we do have vaccinations out there. Um, and right now, what's happening with the Delta variant is, like, Kind of ravaging the unvaccinated it's almost becoming a pandemic of those that haven't had the either opportunity or have chosen not to take the the vaccine and so for places like iceland where last i checked i think they're at like 95 percent of eligible vaccine um wow. uh, constituents have taken it um and right. are vaccinated um how well they control the influx of tourism and whatnot and how they require um, vaccines for people to enter. And I, I, I think if a country can handle it, I think it's probably going to be Iceland. So I'd say mm. that there's a pretty decent chance. Um, but of course, as we've known, the COVID is uh, as, 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 as known to wreck plans for all of us
0: over the last yeah. year. So um, I'd be optimistic, but definitely pay attention to what's going on. So what did you have to do when you first traveled? There? Did you have to do like PCR tests on the, on, uh, the US side and then in, in Iceland? Or how did it, how did it actually work?
1: <laughs> to leave the US, they don't, care. Um, I don't need to show anything. Um, uh, it's not not a big deal. Um, at least they don't think it's a big deal here. Um, to enter Iceland when I entered, so I arrived on June 26 and that was just on, on July 1st, they had stopped the requirement for PCR tests in addition to showing that you're, you have the vaccine. So I still had to get the nose swab on arrival and then wait 24 hours and then once mm-hmm. I got approval then I was able to move around. Um, before that, they initially had required people to take like a four or five day quarantine uh, regardless because they didn't have the rapid test at the time. Uh, but I was able to take the rapid test, took 24 hours, I was good, and then four days later, um, anyone that entered, who, as soon as you show that you have the vaccine, you don't actually have to have the test. Mm-hmm. Now to re-enter the US, that's a different story. No matter where I'm at in the world, I still have to get a PCR test within 72 hours. Technically it's actually, the the term is actually three days. So it's not hours to the hour, it's actually like if I fly out on Tuesday, I need to have a test by a Saturday um, based on that that three day window. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I have that as a negative test, even though I am vaccinated, then you are allowed to board the flight. And so it's a, a FAA rule based on the federal government here that we have to get that in order to enter, even if we're vaccinated. At least that's the rules for now.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Cool. So, uh, what was what it like- were you doing out in Iceland, Colby? Were, were you uh, were you running a workshop?
1: Yeah, so I had um, I was doing a couple of things. I was running uh, a project for a marketing campaign for Dell and as well as a small one for Western Digital. And then I had my first workshop in a year since COVID hit, um, which was great. Everyone was wonderful. Again, it was great because of the requirement of vaccines, which I require on all my workshops anyway nowadays. and it was, it, was, it was a blast. And then I stuck around for an extra week afterwards. My wife and son came out. It's their second time actually visiting Iceland. So we rented a camper van. And I was able to show them more of the glaciers and, of course, the volcano that's going active out there. So my my nine-year-old son was able to see, you know, active lava exploding out of the volcano and, you know, checking out geothermal pools and all sorts of fun stuff. So I ended up spending about, I think it was 27 days um, in Iceland, which was a, a nice break from from life back here in the States,
2: at least. Oh, man. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I love Iceland. That's incredible. I mean, it's hmm. it's a place that it, it's it's ridiculous, right? It's, it's over here. People say, "Oh, I'd love to go to Iceland. I'd love to go to Ireland. I'd you know all those kind of places that are just really local to us over here over here in the UK." There's absolutely no excuse not to, not to have gone. But Iceland is one of those places I've never actually been to, and it's you know you see photos you see videos and we've spoken to a number of people on this podcast who have um been been over to iceland and there's nothing but good things to say about it there's nothing negative about iceland <laughs> it's just why haven't we been k why haven't we been tell me because it's <laughs> too cold man it's, it's just too cold <laughs> <laughs> it's not it's probably colder for you guys. it's actually not too bad uh, yeah. too
1: bad in Iceland but uh, no I mean it's uh, you could say the same about a lot of you know people in the states as well. I mean it's like this unique spot that is of course this you know amazement of, of, of uh, you know geothermal uh, uniqueness around the world It's one of the most okay. active volcanic spots um, on the planet. And it's just, it's so diverse between its geology and kind of what you can see and experience there in the waterfalls and the glaciers. And it's like this perfect little spot that's between the U.S. and Europe. And so, you know, going to Europe or going to the U.S., you know, vice versa, and having a stopover in Iceland is kind of what they've marketed over the last, let's see, I've been going there for 11 years now. Yeah. Um, and they've done a good job of, of giving people an excuse if you are making that longer trip to, you know, might as well stop for a couple of days. And that's usually how they get you. They, they, they tease you with a few day experience and then you want more and more and. I think this this last trip was my thirty fifth trip there over oh, the last wow, eleven oh years, which is quite ridiculous when I say it out loud. Um, but it just goes to show just how amazing the the country truly is.
2: I'm pretty sure you should have a uh, a second passport now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm buying for
1: it. I don't know. You know, depending on the last election was going here, I was going to opt for it. But uh, uh, for for now, at least, we're, we're we're good. They're gonna give you the keys to the city soon. Yeah, I hey, will yeah. take
2: it, man. <laughs>
0: I would not be upset about living in Iceland. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it looks beautiful. It's one of these things, of course, you know, from a photographic point of view, you know, we've, we've talked about it several times Nick, and they can't wait that, you know, th- we're sort of planning, we're sort of semi-planning trips um, over the next couple of years. And, you know, I think it's it's going to drain our bank accounts <laughs> by the yeah. looks of it at this point. But yeah, it would definitely be great. Um, so, as it, I mean, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, as a travel photographer, just generally, because that—that's really what you do. Uh, for those people who don't know, um, I, I think you know, COVID must have had a major, major impact on on what you do over the last like year and a half, eighteen months. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, well, it, it was interesting. You know, I I spent twenty twenty the beginning part of twenty twenty like a normal year, right? At least for me. Um, mm-hmm. I I, said, I spent New Year's Eve in Uganda trekking with silverback gorillas uh, with oh. a few clients, and then from there I went to Norway and I was doing I taught a workshop um, uh, photographing the Northern Lights. I had a, did a video project for B and H there, video series. And then I was actually in Cuba right around March 10th to the 12th, right when the world shut down. Um, Mm -hmm. Again, with clients like in the middle of Cuba being being like, "Okay, well, you know, airplanes might not be allowed back. So we should probably head back to the States. And from that moment forward, it was just it was no travel. Um, And it was, you know, it was a blessing and a curse. And and, uh, what I mean that is that. I've been doing this for 15 years. You know, I, I've worked for National Geographic. I own my own companies now, as we talked about with The Giving Lens, Coley Brown mm. Photography. I travel on a normal year, anywhere between five to seven months out of the year. Um, to be fair, to be honest, I was getting a little bit burned out and mm. you know, uh, with the excessive travel and, and um, being away from my family as much as I was. So COVID came for me personally at a very opportune time to kind of just take like a creative sabbatical and I spent most of last year, while you know, obviously it hurt financially to to lose as much revenue as I did. Um, to be able to spend that much time with my family and be home all the time, um, and and to spend so much more time playing Legos with my my son or, or spending more quality time with my wife, it was it was actually really nice. It was a beautiful silver lining. Um, and at the same time, as I mentioned, because I was hitting this kind of this, 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 this burnout, um, or temporary burnout. I also had this like kind of creative wall. So like last year, while I did do a handful of projects, cause I kind of needed to, to make a little extra income, I was mostly just kind of at arm's length. And so it wasn't until the vaccine started coming out earlier this year that things really started kicking back into gear. And it was, it's really great to be back here and to be re-energized and, um, to be excited again about you know, travel and, and projects and expeditions and stuff that's going around. And of course, obviously with the Delta variant, you know, things are up in the air a little bit, um, but it was nice to take the break. It was nice to spend time with the family. Um, it was a bit painful financially, but, you know, it, we were able to survive and, and, and still do quite well um, and try to reinvent ourselves. Like a lot of photographers out there trying to figure out new ways in order to create new revenue streams or expand ones that we'd kind of neglected. Um, and so, yeah, I, I you know, I've been in, I'm in a fortunate position where I wasn't directly affected by, by COVID and my personal family um, and outside of the small, the, the financial hit, um, it, was a, it was a fun opportunity for me to, to, to rekindle my excitement for the creative side of things, for photography, for travel in general. And as I mentioned, uh, to spend some great quality time with the family. So I, I yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones for sure.
2: So spending, you know, you know, the last few years, you know, traveling for six or seven months of the year and then having, you know, 12 to 18 months kind of break from that and doing all the things that you've been doing, you know, getting all that time at home is a wonderful break for you and a wonderful relief. Do you think, I appreciate this, it's going to be kind of slow moving for another few months at the very least, but do you think you'll spend less time traveling now going forward now you've kind of experienced that like kind of long term period at home?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know if the correct term is is, is less travel, but I think more specific, um, uh-huh. you know, to be more pointed in the projects I work on, to be more careful about selecting, you know, my calendar in terms of where I'm going and why and and what I'm doing and, and you know, the money that I'm making, um, you know, it kind of, I guess I should say it reprioritizes things, right? Right. right. Um, I think there's going to be this natural, there's going to be a natural... <laughs> opening of the floodgates and it's already kind of happened. So like, again, I didn't travel from March 10th of last year until, um, may of this year. And it kind of the floodgate just opened from there. I was doing projects in Costa Rica for some wildlife projects. And then I was up in Alaska and then Vegas and then Iceland. And then now I'm taking in that, you know, the next month and a half off before things potentially start kicking back into gear again, depending on how things go worldwide. Um, but I, and so I mentioned that because I think that when the faucet is off for so long, when it first starts back up, it's gonna be a bit of a flood. There's gonna be a lot of projects that companies are gonna wanna catch up on. There's gonna be a lot of interest for people to take workshops. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't take advantage of that. But I think once we get over this initial hump of like, hey, we're kind of settling into um, the term that I hate to use, the new normal, um, (laughs) I think that, that I absolutely will Pull a step back. I mean, I was already naturally gravitating at the end of 2019 to like start to outsource some of the projects I was doing, building out and expanding my team, bringing in other photography structures into the umbrella of my company, so that I don't have to be on every single trip. And I think there that will there will be a continuation of a prioritization of that as I move forward, so that I'm a bit more picky when it comes to the the specific experiences I'm going out there to either document, um, to capture, or to teach. And that will give me a bit more flexibility in order to spend more time with the family, uh, but at the same time, also piggyback some of those ad- those adventures, as we did in Iceland this this past summer, uh, just the, you know a few weeks ago, where I was doing some marketing campaigns at a workshop and then brought the family out. Like we try to do that quite a bit as well. So hmm. finding this new balance of what that's going to look like, so I don't get burned out again, I think is going to be the key. Um, and so, yeah, I think there'll, there'll be some adjustments for sure after this initial flood of interest of people that's been, you know, having cabin fever for the last, you know, sixteen months of wanting to travel or wanting to learn about photography and YouTube or, you know, the, the, this 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 hands-off approach uh, of, of consuming content that we all have have been part of. Uh, people want to be back in the field. People want to have those experiences. And yeah. so, um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see
2: how how it all works out. It's interesting, isn't it? By perhaps by stepping back slightly and being more like you say specific in what you you your the travel that you do and is kind of has led you to expanding your own team for your business which then in turn will probably mean more trips actually happen as a business over, overall going forward which means more revenue anyway so it's, it's actually interesting when you when you actually do take a step back and think about it that way it's a very very smart move and I I, I'm, I'm guessing that the last 12 to 18 months has given you the opportunity, the space to actually sort of rethink these things, look look at look at what, how your business is operating and yeah, yeah. You know, see how you work work on those adjustments, right? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I think, you know, from a business standpoint, um, which I, I, I love the business side of
1: things. I think a lot of creatives tend to kind of scoff at it um, and or, or just want to take pictures and travel the world and get paid for it, which isn't how it works. Um, but like the, from the business side of things, like I think there's a lot of opportunity there, and, and I think a lot of photographers, um, a lot of creators, a lot of entrepreneurs don't always think about scalability, right? So mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate in my 15-year career um, to to make a very good living doing this between my different companies, and you know when I start to look at the revenue streams that really bring in a lot of the 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 the, the bulk of the the financial benefits for this. Um, oftentimes a lot of those pieces have these kind of low ceilings like it's high reward high profitability but low ceilings in terms of scalability like i can only do so many workshops a year right i can only have feet on the ground in so many locations um, even if i was single and nomadic let alone having you know a wife and son and family back here in uh, eastern us and so you know to absolutely taking that break give me more opportunity to kind of think proactively about, you know, where do I want to be in two years? Where do I want to be in five years? I still want to be traveling. I still want to be having these experiences. I still want to be focusing on, you know, humanitarian conservation efforts like I do with some of my, my organizations. Uh, but at the same time, I want to be more present. I want to be, a you know, a more present husband and father. And um, so this has given me that space to kind of think more proactively about it. And I'm, I'm excited to see kind of where it takes me and the challenges that are certainly going to come um, to to. Allowed those ideas to come to fruition, um, but it's definitely, like I said, it's pre reprioritized things for me, which is um, which has helped. It, it, it's helped give me a sense of perspective that I had before, but didn't have the time to really think about. And
2: uh, I, I've, I've certainly had that break, as we all have. Um, and now, uh, yeah, like I said, we'll see where it goes. I, I think there's so much good stuff in what you just said there that any anyone listening at the moment rewind the last sort of five or ten minutes and listen to that again. <laughs> it 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 will trigger a few little thoughts in your mind about your 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 own business and how you go about 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 looking at that because there's some nuggets of gold in there, I promise you. <laughs> <laughs> it's also it's also, you know,
0: the the whole silver lining thing mean sometimes, you know, when yeah. when you find yourself in a situation like this that at the beginning looks like a total shock to the system. You know, it's it's about sort of recalibri- uh, re whats the word? Recalibrating, you mm-hmm. know, and and uh, and then trying to kind of zone out of the negatives, you know, and yeah, uh, and refocusing on the on the potential positives. Because I think it's really interesting, you know, having spoken to quite a lot of um, guests on the show over the last um, over the last year or so, it's really interesting to get people's perspective and to see how you know how as individuals, you know, we have dealt with you know, with with the thing that's really affected all of us, you know, and uh, all, all the positives that have come out of it. It's been, it's been amazing to, you know, to witness actually over the last year, you know. Absolutely. Well, I think it's it's
1: easy to go negative, right? I mean, it's, it, sure. ta- it takes less effort in a challenging situation like dealing with COVID, whether it's again, financial or health or any of these other aspects to really kind of just either, either go to the negative or like hone in and just like focus on it. And I think that, mm-hmm you know, once you break out of that, it really opens up more opportunities. And I think that's kind of, you know, the mindset that I've always had, like if we look back at like the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, like Mm -hmm. a similar situation happened. It was a very challenging financially for a lot of companies, a lot of individuals, a lot of entrepreneurs, but out of that came revitalization. became creativity. It came people reinventing themselves. And there was there was so much potential positivity for those that were willing to change their mindset to try to look at the situation differently. And there was a lot of companies that also folded and that couldn't handle it. And we're seeing the same thing right now. And I think a lot of it comes down to how you choose to live your life. You know, there's so many of these variables that we can't control, right? Whether it's personal or business or financial, um, there's only so much that we can. And once you absolve yourself of the responsibility of controlling, trying to control things you can't control, it really becomes a freeing experience to... um, I don't know to, to to change the way you look at the world, to change the way you look at business, to change the way you mm. look at relationships, like anything. Um, it, it's it's rather exciting, I think, mm. and 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 it's hard to have those moments of, you know, rejuvenation or, or or excitement for creativity when a lot of people are struggling around the world. But again, there's only so much yeah. that you can individually do, and I think that the more of us individuals that can change that mindset and try to approach these challenging situations in a more you know, positive or pragmatic light. I think the better.
0: Yeah, you know, it's totally but, true. There's um, I remember the turning point actually, and I, I've written a very long blog on Scott uh ScottKelby.com. If you are listening and you want to check it out, we put a link in the thing. Um, about about that exact point because um, we've talked about oh, we we kind of talked this to death really <laughs> on this podcast, but um, but you know, of course, there, there was a point for both Nick and I, you know, at the very beginning where. You know, after the initial shock to the system and the realization that we now have a lot of time to watch a lot of Marvel movies, uh, you know, there was a point where it's like, right, okay, something's (laughs) got to change, you know? And then of course you start, you start thinking about, okay, I can control this. I can control that. And I have no control over this. What can I actually control? And then you start shifting the other way and you go like, okay, now forget about what I can't do. Let's focus on the things that we can do. And then, you know, and that's led us to where we are today. And, you know, yeah, uh, it's it's an interesting thing. I had this discussion the other day and I kind of thought, you know, my, my sort of photographic career was going a certain way before COVID. And weirdly, uh, you know, both Nick and I, we both now ended up in a completely different place because of COVID. And that's really interesting because it's rather than it, it putting a stop to things or like slowing us down is actually although we've gone in a slightly different direction it's weirdly accelerated um, a sure. lot of things yeah. you know that's that's been a, that's been a really positive um positive experience not only in terms of like you know, the, the things that we do, but also the things that we know now, because even, you know, as we've always, as we always say, this podcast is is a great learning experience, not only for our listeners, but also for us, you know, because we get to talk to people who are really good at what they do. And it's like, you know, I'll tell you a little story about my efforts in landscape photography. You'll have, we'll have a jolly good laugh about that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I mean, it's, it's been extremely, um, you know, worthwhile and useful for us to do it. To, to even you start this podcast and do all sorts of other uh, projects that we we've only you know we've come back from a for a little project a little side project yesterday um that really we only we're only doing because of because of the podcast and because of the people that we've spoken to and it's given us all sorts of different um ideas so it's it's been That's a awesome. really positive experience for us too and hopefully for all of you listening as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, if it, and if it hasn't, now's the time to try
1: to change that mindset. That's I mean, right. I think you put it really elegantly in terms of like kind of how it worked for you. Like there, the, you hit these these walls, and you have to to find a new new pathway. I mean, it's it's the journey for either entrepreneurship or even life in general or yeah. creativity is a river, right? So if you get some boulders, you get things in the way, like the river has to find a pathway through. It's not mm-hmm. going to just stop and overflow. And, you know, finding, you know, creating a new new pathway for the river that you're on, I think is, uh, is the key. And, you know, continuing to move forward, whatever direction that forward may be, which might be left yeah. or right or something else that you didn't even think of before. Um, and that's what presents those opportunities.
0: Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about landscape photography then, because, um, you know... Uh, I'll give you a little bit of background. So I'm not a landscape photographer at all, um, <laughs> but I love landscape photography. And one of, the, one of the things that I was going to do last year, last summer, um, was I was going to uh, link up with some family of mine in Canada, uh, in Nova Scotia, and I was going to take that as an opportunity to um, kind of improve my landscape photography game. That, of course, never happened because travel went out the window and, uh, you know, um, and it just didn't happen. Um, and so what I'd like to know is like, how did you, like, first of all, was landscape photography, was that, was that the kind of thing that got you into photography in the first place? Or was that something, um, that you developed over time?
1: I think it was more of a natural progression. I mean, I got into photography mostly because of a love or at the time, a little bit of an obsession of, of travel. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I, was fortunate to travel a bit in, in high school. And then throughout college, I take a semester off here and there and kind of take a break through my studies and, and, and good travel around. So I got the travel bug early. By the time I graduated, I, I really just wanted to be back on the road. I was single. I was nomadic. I didn't have much debt. Like I, I I had enough freedom to be able to, um, make that choice to sit there and say, Hey, you know, this is something I'm really interested in. I, I will, I like being outside my comfort zone. I want to learn more about, different ways of, of life and different, you know, thoughts and beliefs and ideals. Um, and so I, I, I picked up my first camera, my own digital camera, solely because I was like, hey, maybe I can document some of these experiences that I really want to have from a personal standpoint and maybe make a little bit of money on the side and it will help me, you know, pay some bills and I can travel for longer. Hmm. Um, and so it was that f- the first initial first few years was mostly focused around that idea of travel experiences and then naturally over time, you know, my interests changed and 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 morphed and evolved where I started finding myself being drawn to different types of experiences. And some of those experiences were based on kind of having solitude in nature. And that's kind of where the landscape mm. came in, where I wanted to. Maybe get away from people, and and I just you know wanted to take a step back from humanity, and I wanted to go and spend some time in in Nepal in the Himalayas. I did that early in my career. I spent a, a couple of months living up in the Himalayas, uh, documenting some projects around the Sherpa people. But on my free time, I was able to explore these areas that were relatively untouched by man, um, and it just really got me excited about that idea of building a relationship with with nature and kind of how everything works together. And that idea of, of the perspective and the grandeur and the beauty of nature, and how can I capture that better? How can I be better at, at sharing those experiences with other people that might not have those opportunities? Um, and so that's kind of where landscape came in. And 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 the other genres that I've, I've kind of morphed into over the years, I do quite a bit of wildlife now. Mm. Uh, I actually probably a predominant focus, uh, obviously humanitarian work that I do through The Giving Lens, um, each of these these, interest in in different genres of photography have stemmed out of the desire to not be too consistent in terms of my interests because i think too much consistency freaks me out a bit like if i did the same thing over and over again like i don't think i could handle that uh just from a psychological standpoint and so i like the challenges of trying new things and Starting off with travel and being excited about it, still being excited about it, but wanting to branch out and challenge myself more and let me go to some more of the remote places around the world. How can I plan for that? How do I prepare for that? How do I survive in some of these locations? How do I document? And then from there, it's like, oh, well, I'm in this cool location. Like there's a Puma. How do I document that? How do I, you know, how do I track Puma? How do I, uh, you know, go to some more of these remote places around the world or, or different places around the world to, to photograph or document? Uh, endangered species or things like that. And same thing came, like I said, with humanitarian. It's like these, you know, these particular, this particular cause, youth education programs or clean drinking water projects, women's vocational schools, you know, Syrian refugees coming into to Jordan because of what's happening in the Middle East. Like each of those have stemmed from this desire to challenge myself, to better myself from a individual standpoint, but also from a creative standpoint. And so there's been this natural progression over my career to constantly want to challenge myself and, and feel that I, I have more to learn and I have more to bring to the table. And, and you know, once that well drives up, maybe I'll pick a different career. But for now, it's uh, it's still quite exciting. And every day I'm trying to learn new things and get inspired by new individuals and, um, yeah, try and experiment with different types of photography.
2: I bet you, I can only imagine you've got oh, thousands of stories um, over the, the trips that you've been on um, I'm I'm particularly interested in some of your wildlife stories that you might have and some uh I'm sure there's been some scraps and scrapes that you've got into to capture what you wanted. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it depends on
1: the type of of, of trip, but I, I I mean over the years there I, I try to I'm a l i am I was a little bit more I don't want to say adventurous. I was a little bit maybe stupid when I was, you know, <laughs> early in my career when I didn't have a, a wife and son and I was a little bit more willing to try to do things that I might not have, have uh, should have been doing. Um, but even now, you know, I, I find myself occasionally in situations obviously with certain types of animals that, um, you know, you you the the goal with wildlife photography is not put yourself in a position where you let the animal make a bad choice, right? right. Um, and so that's often what I what I do. So whether I'm tracking jaguars, say, in Brazil, like we're doing it from the safety of a boat. Now, of course, a jaguar could jump into one of these boats as we get close to shore, but like that just doesn't happen. Um, I've had times where I've had Um, you know, false charges from rhinos or from African elephants in East Africa that had gotten pretty dang close to a vehicle. But again, you have the right guides or the right, you know, driver, the people that are paying attention to help have your back as you kind of have these blinders on as I'm photographing video or or doing, you know, photography, um, where things really get interesting for me is actually more so when you're on the ground, um, with some of these, Mm. these amazing creatures, um, silverback gorillas is one of the, the, the ones I love talking about the most, cause it's probably my favorite to document in the entire world. And the reason why, why I personally find them to be so fascinating is the similarities they have obviously with human beings in terms of sharing so much of the genetic code, but their mannerisms, how they act and how they engage, but how they, um, how big the big male silverbacks are and, and, and to really have that, that idea or that, um, that, that experience, humbling experience of, of of not being the alpha species in an environment on the ground you're not in a land cruiser in Africa traveling around you know safely from cheetahs and leopards and and, and lions you're on the ground with these these creatures which are uh herbivores but you know the 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 big boys can uh could crush you if they wanted to and, and I've had a number of times because I'm six foot three uh you know I've a I'm I'm bald. I'm, I'm I'm white, so I have a shiny head. Like I, I attract a lot of attention from some of these species, and so oftentimes when I go do work with the silverbacks, like they'll I, I get false charge because I'm the largest person in their you know habitation, uh, habituation area, and those are always a little bit. Um, I don't want to say worrisome, but, you know, heart stops for a second or so when the ground starts pounding and you know a silverback's coming and you just got to stand your ground and do your thing. Um, Those are probably, at least in the last couple of years, probably some more of the more, um, like I said, not scary moments, but definitely ones that make you think that uh, or or appreciate um, our place in the world. Um, compared to a lot of other, a lot of other wildlife experiences out there, where, like I said, it's a little bit more at arm's reach, so yeah. um, you don't have to worry so much. But you, yeah, Silverback Girls. If anyone's out there, you guys watching, if you guys are interested in wildlife photography at all, or just just animals, um, it is by far the most intimate and amazing experience that you can have. Uh, Uganda, Rwanda are the two best countries to go explore and visit them in. Um, and once COVID settles down, I highly recommend you guys check it out. Whether you join me on a workshop out there or do it yourself, like. It is, it's a life-changing experience, and, and I don't use that term lightly.
2: I think it's an absolute privilege to be able to get near those particular animals. You know, as, I, I don't know what it is today, but certainly few, several years ago when I heard the number, there was only a few thousand left um, in in the wild. I, um, I'm guessing that's less now, uh, no doubt. And... Yeah. It won't be long before no one's going to have the opportunity to actually be close to them, be in their presence, have have the opportunity to take a photo of them. Is just, oh, do it now, do it absolutely, do it now before there there's no chance left. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you
1: know, the, the right now the silverback gorillas are it's less than a thousand, I believe. Um wow. But it's actually. There's some good news in that because a lot of the conservation efforts from the Uganda Wildlife Authority, from what's happening in Rwanda, even in the Congo who's who's had civil war for the last thirty years, yeah. like the numbers are actually increasing because of the significance put on security and educating um, for the local, um, you know, local citizens in these countries for the value of, of these amazing creatures. Um, and and we're, we're seeing much less of what we used to see specifically when it comes to the silverback gorillas, where they were getting killed for poachers and stuff like that. Yeah. So there's some positivity happening that's come out from the amazing stories and experiences and, and people being able to, to have those experiences, document them, and share them with other people out there to raise money and funds and all sorts of other great things. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, the the world's changing, and there are other creatures out there sh- for sure that are getting affected by um, human you know, either interaction um, or things like poaching or climate change or all sorts of other stuff. And you know, certain species, depending on where your interest may be, may not be around in another 20 or 30 years. And that's a a sad state of affairs. And um, hopefully we can change some of that. And, you know, some of the work that I do is aimed at that. So a lot of the work that a lot of my colleagues do is aimed at that. And there's some positivity and there's a lot of good stuff happening too. Um, But we still have quite a bit of a fight on our hands in order to try to save some of these species and not leave such an impact from, uh, you know, the human species ravaging the earth like we have had
2: tendency to do for the last couple Mm. hundred years at least. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Um, A friend friend of mine went on his honeymoon to Uganda um, Mm. specifically to go and see the silverbacks. And he said, you know, you used the word life-changing a a few minutes ago and that's pretty much what he said when he came back. Mm. You know, it's just, you're just in awe or of them when you're there and you know he said if, if you ever get the opportunity to go just just do it save for as many years as you need to whatever it might be it's well well worth it absolutely um, yeah yeah what else can you say about them <laughs> it's just <laughs> <laughs> how do
0: you plan for expeditions like this because it's this the, the one thing that you know i've always mm. been interested in um when i've you know when i've been following um let's say you know uh wildlife photographers or you know national geographic photographers for example is I've always wondered like how much planning goes into an expedition like that. Um, do you meticulously, because I, I'm guessing you know, that there are a number of factors that you just can't plan for. Sure. Like, you know, for instance, I mean, we had a conversation with Dave Williams, um, at, at some point, you know, we're talking about uh, some of his Arctic expeditions and you know, question was like, well, how do you know, like you, you going through all the, you know, the hardship of traveling there, like with planes, Cars, boats, whatever, you know, canoes. And you get to the point and the weather is crap. (laughs) You go, ah, damn it. (laughs) You know, sure. Like, this is is the thing. I always think like, I mean, you know, how how much planning goes into like a typical um, expedition for you? Quite a lot. Um, I mean, it depends on
1: the expedition. Obviously, it depends on the duration or the specificity of, of of the rareness of what I'm trying to document. Right? Is it is it something that's more general? Is it just like documenting silverback gorillas in general, or is it like a very specific type of, you know, experience or or you know um, uh, something that I'm going after, which makes it a bit more rare? Hmm. But for the most part, you know, depending on if it's a country I've been to many times, um, that conversation usually starts with finding people I can trust on the ground, which depending on the country can be difficult, right? Hmm. Some of these uh, expeditions can be quite expensive and, you know, sending thousands of dollars, sometimes a lot more to individuals. You don't personally know, um, can be unnerving. I've, I've had Hmm. times I had, um, at one time in Tanzania uh, with one of my companies, the phone of our contact who is trustworthy was hacked and um, a uh, the bank wire transfer was changed at the last minute, which we didn't oh. catch um, and ended up sending, uh, I think it was $12,000 that just vanished in thin air because didn't,
0: it you, was, you didn't, was gone. You didn't send it to some Nigerian prince, by any chance. Nigerian. It
1: was not a Nigerian <laughs> prince. It was apparently a Tanzanian <laughs> prince. No, it was... Uh,
0: <laughs> But it was, you know, stuff like that happens. And,
1: and yeah. you know, for me, you know, I, I usually go for word of mouth with people I trust. So guides that I know that I've worked with for years in places like Africa, uh, who do they recommend? Um, colleagues of mine from uh, Nat Geo Days or other people within the wildlife or general adventure travel space. Um, we all have our favorites, right? And I've had a number of times where I'm like, hey, I want to go to this place to do that. And I reached out to people and I'm like, hey, do you have a fixer? Do you have someone that you know on the ground here or here? Hmm. And they say, yeah, I got this person, he's the best. I send them, a, send them a message or they put me in contact and it's like kismet, it's perfect. There's no problems, like they, they work out all the details. Other times when it's a place that I don't have contacts or I can't find it, then it's a um, it can be a bit more challenging and usually I have to go and, and scout it first and, and make sure I can trust um, trust these individuals. But having a fixer on the ground is uh, it's like gold. Um, the value they bring from local information um, to be able to, you know, deal with the nuances of, of little things such as um, translation um, to navigating, you know, permits that you need depending on the type of location or what you're trying to, to document. Um, can be a godsend. And and so that's usually the first first stage of where I'm at is trying to find find a fixer on the ground that can help me, you know, uh, realize the idea I have in my head of what I'm trying to do. Mm. And then from there, it's just quite a bit of research at the time of year, how much duration I always try to build in number of days when it comes to dealing with bad weather, depending on the country, also dealing with just really crappy logistics, um, you know, bad road infrastructure. Mm. Um, Uh, the dependability of domestic, you know, flights or even renting our own planes and Cessnas, Um, you know, things like that all come into play when it comes into, you know, I may be going to a location to document a very specific thing, but I'm going to give myself 12 days, even though I only really need probably two of those days so that I can attempt to account for, as you said, uh, bad weather or, um, you know, cars breaking down, pop tires, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff that, that, absolutely always happens. Um, mm. there's never a trip that doesn't have some sort of fun nuance in it. Um, and so, so yeah, like I said, I, doing the research, having people you can trust on the ground, um, and then giving yourself enough flexibility and time in order to uh, account for the unaccountable, I think is always the key. And it doesn't always work out. I, I, I remember on my last polar bear expedition up to Churchill, Canada, spent a lot of money, Um, uh, putting that together and went out there and it was a wonderful year for the bears because the freeze came early, which on Lake Hudson means that um, the ice shelf um, is expanded, which has been contracting for years, which has been very problematic for the endangered polar bear. But when the ice shelf freezes early, then the polar bears can get out early, which means they can go um, hunt on the harp seals and they have a higher chance of survival. All amazing things except if you arrive when you're supposed to arrive when it's not supposed to freeze and the bears are supposed to be around and then it freezes and all the bears leave and you're kind of sitting out there in the tundra in like negative 50 degrees you know (laughs) temperatures with nothing to shoot for a week Uh is always a a funny you know when you look around you're like okay there's no birds there's no nothing like there's nothing here like what am i doing um those experiences can happen and you just kind of have to deal with it and and roll with the punches when it comes to Weather and wildlife and all sorts of other things,
2: but uh, yeah, it's it, it's a challenge. You, you know, I was watching a um sort of a, a BTS video of um like a David Attenborough st- uh, program, like Planet Earth or something like that. It was one of the more recent ones, and I f- I forget now where they where they where they were and what they were shooting, but they were sat in a hide basically for two months. Two months. Yeah. They got one shot. Yeah, one shot. But that's all they needed. But that's what it took to get what they needed that's how rare this this particular animal was to to see and it's just i i I thought to myself at the time i said do i have the patience for that i i don't know i just don't Uh, know (laughs) probably not man to be fair
1: i probably don't even have the patience for that like I, i i'll go to places and wait for for days and and you know maybe a week or two to try to get something like that but some of the things, especially the BBC Wildlife, those guys, oh, man, they're on a different level. It's a Aren't different they? playing field for those individuals. And and as we watch those amazing shows and Planet Earth and, and all that stuff, like, it pays off. Um, but would any of us really want to be the individual, like, sitting in that hide, <laughs> getting bit by all sorts of random things for two months to get one shot? Maybe not. I don't know. I think that it takes a certain individual to be able to really... Yeah. Um, handle that from a professional and a psychological standpoint. Yeah. And yeah. I don't, I don't know if I'm that person.
0: No, me either. Yeah, who's it, who is it? Kay? How about you? <laughs> uh, I don't know. Do you remember when we spoke to, we spoke to Moose Peterson and, you know, we're talking about um, yeah. his wildlife photography yeah, and, um, you know, we, we kind of came to the point where we asked like, you know, how, how do you like, what, what kind of qualities do you need? You know, as a wildlife photographer. And he goes like, you know, our patience. I could sometimes I sit on a on a rock and I wait for 9 hours for something to come out of a hole. I'm just really good yeah. at watching holes. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay. That's that's a t-shirt right there. Right. Yeah. You know. Um but yeah, I mean it's absolutely true, you know. And that's probably um you know, when I when I think about you know, when I think about myself as a as a human being and like about my sort of levels of patience, um that's probably one of the reasons why i never got into uh, why i never really seriously got into landscape photography in the first place is because it does um it does very often entail having to get yourself out of bed really early in the morning and then (laughs) dragging your sorry self into some field (laughs) you know and i end up staring at a tree whilst you're waiting for the sun to go you know and like you know and is the thing and like where, where i come from from um shooting um concerts and you know um, and, and music and stuff like that um it, it's completely different you know you basically all the action is there it's all happening really fast and then before you know it, it's over and you're going on you know so i have no problem <laughs> staying up until four o'clock in the morning shooting a gig but i find it very hard to get myself up at four o'clock in the morning to sit mm-hmm. in some field you know um well
1: i, I, I find it's like subjective patience too because sure. you know if you play that if, if you switch those roles like an individual, like I've gone to Patagonia and waited five days for light to, you know, for, for clouds to move and light to hit a mountain peak. And I have no problems doing that, but like staying up late at a loud concert, you know, even if it's a short duration, I'm dealing with different other types of, you know, loud noises or other things Mm. that I don't have patience for. Um, I've kind of find that over the years as well, because, you know it definitely comes down to what you're willing to subject yourself to because what for some consider patience others are like oh i'm just waiting for this one epic amazing shot that's going to be totally worth it um yeah. and and you're like i'm going to stay up late and get these great images and it doesn't take a lot of time and i love this you know the atmosphere of what's going on here um i definitely feel that across across mm. the board um which has been interesting for me as i mentioned before shooting a lot of different genres of photography when i first started getting into travel and landscape I was that same individual that was like wildlife photography. I'm not going to go sit in a tree and go wait for a bird for, <laughs> yeah. you know, hours on end. Like who would do that? And then yeah. like fast forward 10 years, I'm like in the middle of Brazil, like waiting in the morning for that thing to happen. <laughs> and like, yeah. you just never know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it, you're you're 100% right. It's all about patience. Yeah. But like I said, subjective patience for sure.
0: It's also something I think that I feel like it changes over time. You know, I mean, now, you yeah. know, 10 years on, um, you know, I have a, a much a, you know, a very different appreciation for like, you know, landscape or, wild, or wildlife photography and photographers. And, you know, I think about things very differently now than I did 10 years ago. But I mean, 10 years ago was like, no way I would sit in fields, screw that. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, but, you know, now it's like, I look at, you know, your photography and, you know, at uh, Dave Williams photography, and I think like, wow, okay, now I understand what it takes um, to, to, to create these type of images and, you know, um it's like a much more in a frame of mind where i think like well that's what it takes that's what it takes you know sure let's go do it well, i mean it's yeah
1: it, it's interesting i mean bringing up that subject um you know because i think social media which has been very beneficial to my companies and myself mm-hmm. it also creates this false sense of reality when it comes to a lot of the stuff <laughs> yeah. that we see on instagram for example where you see these, you know, an image of, uh, for wildlife, uh, of, you know, a panther or a jaguar or a leopard or a silverback gorilla. And it's like, oh, this is extremely accessible, but you don't see all the stuff that goes into it. And, and I think that's kind of one of the negative sides of, of this consumption age we are in and, and, right. photography where we're consuming all this stuff, but we don't necessarily always understand the context of what it takes to, to actually have those experiences. Um, and while they're still attainable, um, uh, oftentimes they require a lot of effort or um, you know, sometimes a lot of sacrifice. I mean, I I don't share too many images of me, you know, laying on the floor in, you know, East Africa with malaria and feeling <laughs> like crap and you know, throwing up and and you know, in, in a sketchy toilet and and yeah. all that stuff. But like those are parts of the experiences that sometimes are required in order to get to some of these more ro- remote places and to, mm. to to photograph more challenging things. Um, and so it's always interesting, you know, just this just, just, this talking about that that small little segue into to understanding the significance of what goes behind the shop because we're we're so so used to seeing all these beautiful images and places like Instagram constantly um that I think sometimes we we don't understand that context
0: yeah you're right I mean it's it's you know it's the same or it's very similar actually when it comes to like street photography for example um but sure. you look you know you look at an account and you see like you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, it of amazing images and you kind of go I, it can't be that hard. I mean, it's like a thousand images. On it. it can't be that <laughs> difficult until, you know, until you actually speak to the person, you, you realize that, you know, they're out there four or five days a week, yeah. you know, yep. really grinding and, uh, and cr- in, in order to create these images, you know, we, this is a very interesting conversation we had, um, with Nina Bosch-Kling, you know, uh, when we talked to her about how she creates the images that she creates, you know, and, uh, you know, we were thinking like, well. Like, she must be so good. She must go out and come back with a whole bunch of amazing keepers, you know? And there's Nick and me going into town, and we're like, you know, we're spending like eight hours, and we're like, we oh, only have one photo that's any good. What'd you like, get? Uh, nothing. We're, nothing. We're, just, we're just not, like, you know, we're just not cut out for this. Um, <laughs> until you realize that, you know, it's the same for everyone. And then, yeah. you know, it's just the difference. the difference being Nick and me go out once in the blue moon, and then there are people who do this every day all and the then time just all the time and just work you know work the ass off basically to create a kind of image and it really you know it does it does uh, make you understand how difficult it really is to create a yeah. body of work and this is the thing about instagram in particular i see this a lot you know uh, across different um, styles of photography is that you know you you're really looking at a body of work and then once you look at it like oh you know you look at it as a body of work you understand how much time and effort and patience and work has actually gone into it because you can take any other art form Like take painting you know if you look at um take any famous painter you know over the lifetime they create a a body of work but it does take a long time to create that body of work in the first place and it's, it's you know i always find that it's given me like a totally new completely different appreciation of what people go through to create that kind of imagery for sure you know and that's Oh, I looked at your Instagram account. The First time I saw your Instagram account, I'm like, "What the heck? <laughs> How these real? Do that? <laughs> That's amazing." Um, but do, do you spend a lot of time curating um, your like Instagram account, your social media? How do you approach that in the first place? Not too much, you know. I, I you know, I've been very fortunate with
1: social media. I started my first photography company, Colby Brown Photography in 2006, like a year after like Zuckerberg launched Facebook, right? So I've been a part of most mm-hmm. of the big launches. Um, and so I've been able to ride a lot of those interest waves of photographers and just general content consumption and the visual nature of things like Instagram um, to, to my benefit. Um, and because of that, I've had quite a big uh, following and a, a good amount of engagement across multiple different platforms, some that don't exist anymore, like Google Plus, uh, to some that are obviously still around, like um, like Instagram. And for the most part, I, I try to just post stuff that I'm interested in, you know, I same way I shoot, you know, I, I think... I think a lot of up and coming photographers are constantly trying to to reinvent themselves, to adjust themselves to their audience. And, and I, mm. I just think that I find that problematic from a sustainability standpoint and from a, a a longevity standpoint of being able to constantly feel like you're a chameleon to be able to document how other people want to see your stuff rather than photograph what you like and what you enjoy and process it how you want to. And then spend the time and the effort to find the audience that appreciates what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and so I've been, I, I've had the the fortune of the latter option um, to sit there and build the audience based around these kind of evolving interests. And so I don't have to spend a lot of time being like, what should I share next? And do I do this? You know, I I do pay attention a bit to statistics and to sit there and say, okay, do I have a higher chance at sharing different times of the day? Um, I've started to break, you know, spread out like my posts, like on Instagram, for example, to a couple times a week rather than every single day, just to kind of change things up and also not be tied to it so much. Um, but it's usually just that kind of superficial level looking at it and and wanting to share work that I'm proud of, but not necessarily going to the nth degree to be like, how does everything look in my profile? Does every, all the colors match? Like, that's just, that's not my style. I, I, I see some Instagrammers out there and, and not to, to, to talk in a condescending way, but it's like, you look at their profile and it's like, it's the same color pattern, almost like the same preset for every single image. And like, right. (laughs) <laughs> there's something to that, I guess you're you're putting your stamp on the world and and maybe there's something pleasing to the eye that makes sense that you either have found to be successful or someone told you was successful. But for me, like every in every image is individual. like the subject requires a specific approach to how I document it to how I process it. So while there's some common threads throughout the you know how i I the overall feel and look and the aesthetic of my work, like every image also stands out on its own, or at least I feel that way. Um, And so I I don't try to conform to those ideals rather than to play up to the choice of image and the choice of composition and exposure and post-processing. Um, that emphasize that initial choice of, of the subject matter I'm trying to, to, to capture and then share it out there and, and push it out mm-hmm. there. And so when you look at the feed that I have on things, something like Instagram, it's quite eclectic and it's a big mixture of different types of things. And some of them are processed very differently. And I don't know, I, I kind of enjoy that. I, I like that it speaks to the story that I'm trying to tell rather than just my story experiencing all these other things um i don't think there's a wrong way to do it but for me personally i just i i I prefer that individualistic approach to letting the image tell the story rather than let me try to always tell the story through the prism of the color scheme i think is correct or something like that
0: i think i always find you always find it uh, problematic when um when people shoot full social media um you know it doesn't really it doesn't ever really sit well with me when When I see those kind of accounts where, you know, exactly well, this, you know, this whole thing has been put together for this one purpose and nothing else. And then immediately to me always seems very one dimensional because there's there's nothing behind it. You know, there's nothing else to discover. discover. It's it's really just solely all about how it fits into the, onto the grid. And then you go, okay, you know. Yeah. And then you're bored. And then, yeah, I usually do the same thing. And then I go somewhere else. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like, uh, you know, it's a straight flick for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's talk about The Giving Lens. Sure. So that's a project you you launched um, a few years ago. Um, tell us a little bit about what that's all about. Sure. So The Giving Lens uh, launched
1: in 2011. And essentially, the idea behind it was to create a, almost like an advocacy organization that works with a variety of different organizations. Um, Organizations, charitable um, entities, communities, families that are championing you know specific causes around the world, typically in developing countries. So as I mentioned before, we do a lot of work with youth education programs. We've done projects with women's vocational schools in the Middle East. We've done work with Syrian refugees um, coming out of of Syria and heading into Jordan. We've done work with. Uh, Family migrant trains coming out of Central and South uh, America, coming into Mexico, trying to get to the U.S. And what we do is we bring teams of photographers um, almost in a workshop-like experience where we're teaching people how to be better photographers, but at the same time, their, their goal or their Their purpose is to help these communities or help these organizations fight for these very specific causes. So sometimes we are bringing donated camera gear and we're training an organization how to better document the projects that they're doing so they can raise more funds and they can be better about um, their own advocacy down the line. So it's a bit more sustainable and empowering. Um, Sometimes we are documenting very specific projects so that we can help with fundraising. Um, It really depends on the needs of the organization and the challenges that are facing a specific community or a specific country. And then the money that we raise for this workshop like experience from these, these participants coming from all over the world, then gets folded back into and a lot of that revenue stream comes right back to the community. So we donate a, uh, the vast majority of that money back to these organizations, keep a little bit so that we can keep the gears running and so we can do more of these projects around the world. Um, and then it allows us to do more, to raise more money, to do more advocacy work, to do more fundraisers um, and to ultimately help more people out there. And so it's, it's, it's a pretty unique organization. Um, you know, I found kind of around those early days, especially when I was heavily into travel photography, that there was a handful of issues or nuances or things that just really bugged me about the whole travel photography or, or travel space. Um, one of those was the superficial nature of travel, right? We travel to these locations and we see a very small sliver of what it's actually like for these individuals or the people or the communities that we're we're documenting as we travel around. And that never really set right with me. I always kind of wanted to to get beneath the superficial nature and try to really talk to individuals and really break down, have those conversations, those hard conversations sometimes. Um, I also didn't like that there was not this two-way street of a relationship building. Um, especially for travel photographers and tourists, like we show up into these places and then we have our camera and we stick it in someone's face and we take a picture, and we walk away and there's like, like, that's just such a bad experience for the other individual. It's very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to break that one as well. I wanted to, to change the, the way that we approach, you know, the human side of documenting, uh, travel experiences and, and, and to make it more real and to make it more beneficial for everyone. Um, and then tied to that same thing is just the financial side of things. Like we never really know where our money is going, right? Like um, we stay in a hotel and we're in Kenya or Cambodia. You know, most of the time that money, that, that hotel is own, owned by a foreign company, maybe in France or Germany or Canada or the US. And so having a bit more idea of the money of, of, that we choose to spend in these places, whether it's with a tour agency or uh, the logistical planning or hotel stay or choice to do hotels or homestays, Um, I want to make sure that we're more proactive with where that money goes. And so the giving lens became a conduit to be able to help me in personally solve those issues, but then also allow me to solve those issues for other people. Because I think a lot of photographers want to do more with their photography or Mm -hmm. their passion for photography and art, but they don't know where to start. Mm -hmm. And they also don't even know sometimes to ask those questions of where's my money going? Who am I actually helping? Is what I'm experiencing real? Or is this just a kind of like a puppet show for tourists that jump off a bus and and to have some sort of, you know, experience? Um and, and so this the, the Giving Lens has allowed me to, like I said, to solve a lot of those issues, to raise a lot of money for a lot of organizations around the world and um try to do some good and and to get people expire, inspired and excited about helping other people in these kind of collaborative learning environments and and being in a really cool, unique location and having a unique experience that you really can't get anywhere else. You can't work with the families that we work with if you you take a a standard tour of, of... um, you know, uh, the Maasai Mara in, in, in Kenya, or you go see Angkor Wat in Cambodia, or visit Hyderabad in India, we get access because we have these connections with these local communities to, to break through that superficial nature of those experiences, and then allows people to have, you know, eye-opening um, uh, sense of, of reality of what it's like for these individuals or these communities or, or the challenges that they're facing. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's multifaceted. It's ever evolving. You know, like I said, we've been doing it now for 10 years. Mm. Uh, COVID has been uh, a bit of a hit because of the vast majority of what we do is take people to countries. So yeah. we've been on hiatus as well for the last year, but we're gearing up for 2022 for a lot of great projects uh, around the world, revisiting some old ones, starting some new ones. Mm. Um, it's exciting times for sure. But yeah, uh, like I said, giving lens is meant to, to help people share their love of photography in a meaningful and tangible way that makes a difference for other individuals, um, that we do all the legwork for you so that you get a chance to just focus on that experience and and uh, helping people through your, your love of photography.
2: What an amazing, amazing thing to have been doing for 10 years and mm. fulfilling all at the same time, you know, helping and being fulfilled for yourself is just absolutely mind blowing. I, um, I appreciate that. I couldn't agree more with you with regards to, um, uh, the, uh, the superficial nature that you can see when you visit as a tourist or as a, as, as you say, as, as, a, as a travel photographer. And um, in in a previous life, I used to travel to, you mentioned Hyderabad there, um, I used to travel to Hyderabad all the time um, for, for work and uh, not photography related work, but just uh, office work. And at the time I was, you know, the first couple of trips, you know, you just see, all the usual kind of stuff, right? And you, then you see the inside and outside of a you know, multinational company's office, you know? You see nothing, right? Um, but once I got to know the people out there a lot better, I got invited by several colleagues to go to their homes and see what things were like there. They used to ta- talk to me about what it was really like to live in Hyderabad, even in their, you know, for want of a better phrase, perhaps slightly higher status um, in, in India. And but they had, I've said, lots of family and friends who weren't like that. And we used to, we, we went around and visited those those people too in the you know, all the poorer areas of Hyderabad and and Bangalore as well. And it's not until you see that side of things that you really appreciate the city or the country for what it is and the people who live in it. And sure. it was really eye eye-opening eye for me. And I hadn't I was I was in my twenties as well at the time and you know, very inexperienced and um, naive. Um, I was probably a better word um, to those type of things, but it, it totally changed the way I look at the world and how I look at people in general. And it is probably single-handedly the one of the major experiences that ch- just changed my outlook on life. You know, and awesome. I yeah. is the the. <laughs> Probably the best thing I've ever done was to travel to India, on the number number of occasions that I did, and I would Absolutely. never change that. You're 100% right. I mean, that that
1: it's that type of experience that I think that I think a lot of people don't, are are obviously fortunate to to experience. It. it was it was a challenge for me early on, right? So when I 2006, I bought a one-way ticket to Southeast Asia. Like that's how I started my photography career. Like I just wanted to travel again. Like I said, I was single, nomadic. Bought a one-way ticket, ended up living in Southeast Asia for years. And I remember coming back to the States in those early years and, you know, walking into a Walmart for the first time and just being like sick to my stomach, like seeing the amount of excess that I you know, I was, I was observing how much food we throw away, for example, in restaurants and stuff like that. And I got very bitter for those first few years because I was I wasn't taking into account that other people hadn't had those experiences. They don't necessarily know any better. It's not necessarily a, a a justification for ignorance, but but there's reality to it, right? And so, you know, that type of idea of how do we show that? How do we reveal the realities of what it's like for the vast majority of people that live on this planet to 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 how they live, to the challenges do they face, to, to what is reality. Um is it was one of the driving forces, like I said, between the giving lens, and it's great to hear that you had a similar type of experience, and, and how that just kind of, like you said, opens up your eyes to the to the realities of 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 you know maybe what you took for granted, and yeah. you know what other people think happens, and um, and 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 that 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 kind of plight, that that journey of both for you self discovery, but also for the kind of opening up your 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 mind and your heart to like Mm -hmm. what other people experience I think is great the more we do that as a species the better it is for everyone and um, all too often I find that we we tend to segregate and separate rather than to feel like we're interconnected and um, you know I I, I hope that changes over over time but it's it's a little you know it's little changes at a time individuals and then you share that experience with other people and hopefully that becomes viral in nature um, and, and more people start to care, but it's, it's those types of experiences that I think are
0: vitally important. It's also, you know, on a human level, I agree totally with what you just said about, you know, segregating things and and stuff like that, you know, on, on a more human level, like for instance, um, I find that even, even within, um, like even within Europe, for example, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of a, you know, I'm an immigrant where we are here in the UK because I'm not from the UK and, uh, you know, and so, in, in the past, I've lived in a number of different countries. Um, and the one thing that that staggers me really always is how people in general, um, obviously I'm generalizing, but how people very often focus on the differences, you know, when the, when the reality is, is that it doesn't matter, you know, if you, no matter whether you're German, for example, or British, it's like, you know, we have like 99.9% of things in common. There's really just like, you know let it be one percent that's different and why are we focusing on that one little one percent but when oh, yeah. the, you know when the reality is we're all having the same um fears and you know and whatever you know we're all we're all concerned about our kids getting an education or you know you know having a job and all whatever it may be but the fact is it, it's like we have so much so much in common it's it, it staggers me every time when people talk about like you know how how this is different how that is different. And I always think like, well, okay, so the food in Germany is different. Why don't you embrace <laughs> that for a while? I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, sure. It's it's weird. I it's you know I've never understood that. And I've I've lived I don't know how long have I been here? Like twenty five years or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's it. I I don't get it. I mean, if you you know
1: look back at history, like we 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 as a species tend to have a tendency to do this, sadly, you know what I mean? Like, it's always like us versus them, our city, that city, you know, this ethnicity, that ethnicity, you know, my belief system, your belief system, you know, not even taking into account just religion, but like all sorts of other stuff. Like we're constantly looking to like ways to be like, I'm different than another person. I'm different than that person. As I think you said it right, like we share so much in common and so much of those same fears and idiosyncrasies and imperfections. Um, we should spend more time focusing on how we're interconnected and how we're you know all family in some sense and and how we should look after each other and you know, like I said, there's positive stuff happening out there unfortunately, and like you know news and all sorts of other stuff tends to focus on all the horrible things that we tend to do to each other. Uh, there's a lot of good out there happening too, but I guess you have to you have to search a little bit more to find it.
0: absolutely
2: apparently, that's not exciting news, you know yeah. <laughs> <It's> just... apparently. <laughs>
0: But, you know, I've read an interesting article uh, some months ago, and it was like something along the lines of, you know, uh, what would life have been like if uh, the pandemic had happened or COVID had happened in 2005? And it was like, it was a really interesting thing because you kind of think like, oh, 2005. All right. Yeah, the iPhone hadn't been invented yet. Uh, There was no Facebook No social media? No social media, yeah. Like Skype uh, only did um, voice calls at the time. They hadn't even started doing video calls and stuff. What you really think about is like, Oh man, this would have been a, a whole lot worse.
2: Good God. <laughs> yeah. Full full or, on lockdown.
0: Or or, or arguably better. <laughs> well,
2: or arguably <laughs> yeah. better, right. Yeah. It depends on of course, yeah. But full uh, on lockdown, you've either got to talk to someone at home, <laughs> or God forbid. Um, or you gotta read. That's it. That's yep. pretty much all you had, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no no Netflix. No Netflix. Uh, yeah, no Netflix.
0: Yeah. I, was, like, I remember actually I remember around, that, about, around about that time, I was living in a small cottage out in the on the sticks, on the, the English countryside. And um, although we had a broadband connection, this was of course broadband by like two thousand five standards. And I remember iTunes had just started doing movies. So, but with my connection, I had to basically set the download in the morning. So, it'd be like me and my partner, we were like, "Okay, what movie shall we watch tonight? Okay, this movie. Okay, I'm going to start the <laughs> download, and then you start it in the morning, and then by evening." it would have you been you might have a movie yeah it was like and of course but not if it had stopped recording or stopped downloading yeah. like connection afterwards. drops like, at 99 yeah <laughs> also that was about the same time when every time i wanted to export um, or render a premiere pro video that was like two minutes long it would take all night <laughs> oh goodness <laughs> those are the those are the times those are the days <laughs> so when you travel uh how like how much gear do you normally take with you it really depends on the trip.
1: Um, I try not to bring more than I need to. I used to early on in the career, I'd bring everything, everything in the kitchen sink because I never wanted to be without. Um, but that's just not fun to carry all that no, stuff. And, and and of course, airlines are getting more restrictive on weights and all sorts of other stuff as well. So I mean, I, I try to be pretty pointed for the projects that I'm working on. Um, Like this last trip to iceland for example i i knew beforehand when i was working on those few marketing campaigns i was working on two main subject matters one was the volcano so i had to bring my drone and those pieces and then also i was going up to a remote island in northern iceland called uh, grimsey island um, which is home to tens of thousands of uh, the atlantic seabirds that are up there like puffins and arctic terns and all sorts of stuff it's one of the best places to photograph those birds in all of iceland Um, and so I bring, I brought my, my big wildlife telephoto lenses, um, and then, um, for the rest of the trip, I also had like, maybe just like one or two wide angles, um, to kind of counter match along with the, the the drone. So it was kind of minimalized the, m- mm. the amount of gear I need to bring. Whereas before I might need to bring all my wildlife stuff, and all my landscape stuff. And as I've shot in a mixture of genres, it just gets too cumbersome and weighs too much and whatnot. So um, it's, it's easier for me when I do just landscape, like I'm just going to Patagonia or something mm. like that. I'm just there to use, you know, mostly wide angle stuff. And then, um, you know, two bodies just in case, you know, a wide angle lens, uh, mid-range a mid range and like a 7200 and like it's a small, simple setup. Hmm. It's mostly the wildlife stuff that that throws a wrench into my plans these days because those big 400 and 600, you know, millimeter prime, you know, Sony lenses are, uh, they're lighter than they've always ever been, but they're still, they're still big and hmm. bulky. Um, so it becomes problematic depending on where I'm going. Iceland's easy, but like if I fly to Africa and I got to take a small domestic, you know, uh, puddle jumper to get to some remote place like it becomes it becomes a challenging uh, aspect with with weight and stuff like that so it it, it becomes a bit of a creative tetris when it comes to packing but also for weight planning <laughs> yeah. as well uh for those situations
2: yeah you can yeah just wear a jacket onto the plane you can kind of attach yeah. them on the inside you know <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> i i a friend that was coming to help me
1: film some of the the marketing pieces in Iceland, he had too much stuff and um, he wanted to bring his four hundred uh, to to photograph the puffins as well. And so he brought it as a a, a, a third carry on, which you're not supposed to do, but he essentially called it his medical device. And it was in this like own little private case. And so they're like, oh, a medical device. Yeah, of course you can bring that on.
2: And so he was able to get away with it. You can't you can't use that trick everywhere, but apparently some some places you can. Good to know. See, not just regular <laughs> photography advice on this. This podcast, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Tricks of the trade.
0: Exactly. <laughs> That's what we're getting here. How? Like, I think one of the things that that is, or uh, well, that people are interested in always, because I sort of get these questions a lot, is um, is how uh, how a trip like that is financed. Do you get sponsors on board beforehand, or do you sort of lay out the money and then? try and um, monetize the project so that you're making a return. How does that, how does it actually work mechanically?
1: Yeah, it depends. There's three general main pathways, right, for any of these types of trips. Um, for trips that I'm doing marketing campaigns on, depending on the size of the campaign, sometimes I built into the contract where I get 50% of the contract up first. So if it's a $30,000 project, I'll ask for 15,000 front to cover those initial upfront expenses. Um, if it's a smaller campaign, then generally I just expense it out and then just get paid after the fact. Mm. Um and so that's kind of one way to to do it. You're either expensing out beforehand or partially expensing out, you're doing a marketing campaign. Uh the other way is if um I am doing it more so freelance, where I'm just kind of have this idea of what I'm doing and I either haven't had time or haven't been able to pitch or sell it to, to a company um, or build it into a product or service that I offer myself, then I'm just gonna finance it myself. And then after the fact, I'll worry about licensing or, or finding different pathways for that. So like for the volcano in Iceland, like I will take a lot of that content and then license that video content once I've processed it and put it into pieces uh, to stock video sites, for example, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, And then the third is where it's one of my own product services. That's where like I'm running a workshop. So I'm getting, you know, I'm making quite a bit of money from all the deposits coming in, but I also when all the full full tuitions are due, which is usually three to four months before a workshop. So I already have all those funds to begin with. Um, And then I'm able to oftentimes, like I said, piggyback off of those experiences where I was already teaching this workshop in Iceland uh, that got pushed back from 2020. And then weeks leading up to it, I was like, hey, this would be great for a few different projects. So let me reach out to, you know, Dell or Western Digital or Microsoft or Google or whoever it is. I'm trying to pitch the idea and say, hey, I'm going to this amazing location. I have a small film crew. We can do some cool stuff. Like, do you have any needs or interest? Or sometimes I have a project in mind. And then I'll piggyback off of that to save myself additional expenses, spend an extra four or five days or a week, depending on the needs of the project. And then I'm making the profit from the workshop and then the marketing campaign, or sometimes it's the marketing campaign and then freelance stuff afterwards. Um, and every once in a while, I just don't want to deal with any of it. And then I just will pay all of it up front and uh, we'll just go and have fun and shoot what I want to shoot and then worry about making a living off of it afterwards. Uh, those are the easiest ones because then I don't have any responsibilities and I can kind of just relax and have a little bit more downtime. <laughs> sometimes I find myself piggybacking off of too many things. So it's like, yeah. I'm going to go here and do this, and then I'm going to add this, and I'm uh, you know, and then another project gets added on to it another project. And all of a sudden I'm like working my butt off making a lot of money, but like, I don't have any downtime and like, I don't know, like I guess I've been doing this for 15 years. I, I'm, I'm more about working smartly rather than working harder and to make mm-hmm. more money to, to be more strategic about it. Um, and so I, I try to refrain from those when I can avoid it so that I, I make sure that I'm, uh, I'm not working a job that feels like a job. I'm I'm still enjoying myself, even if it's long hours, even if I'm, you know, freezing cold waiting for a volcano to erupt or or whatever's happening. I, I want to still be enjoying it, and if I if I'm working all the waking hours of the day, that's not so fun for me. So I uh, I try to refrain from that, and I like to say no to no to companies, uh, which is a, a great experience to to have that luxury to say eh, yeah, this is not going to work out. We'll do it another time. Um, <laughs> yeah. Passing up on money, which could be nice, is always a, uh, a freeing experience from a financial standpoint.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
2: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. How, um, it, it's something that's quite, I, I think would be quite interesting to to a lot of people out there. It is those, and I'm sure you've, you've built a lot of these relationships up over many years, um, but pitching to companies like Dell, for example, how, um, how did you first go about, Um, those kind of pitches, I'm sure it's, is it, is it different in the early days to compare to how it is today? A little bit, but not too much different.
1: Um, I mean, it depends on the company, right? So the bigger companies, the, 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 you know, million billion dollar companies, the Sony's, the, the Dell's like those guys are, they have marketing departments and they oftentimes they have social media departments that are wrapped into the marketing arm, uh, of, of their enterprise. But the vast majority of like what they do or how they organize, say, social media or marketing campaigns is actually done through external third-party marketing firms, right? Uh, so um, it's been quite advantageous for me over the years to be able to make these connections with a marketing firm that has multiple different clients. And so um, maybe they'll reach out to me or I'll reach out to a... Uh, like the firm will reach out to me because they came across other work that I've done or... I'll reach out to a company and say, hey, I want to do this project. And they're like, hey, that's great. We use this firm. You have to, co- you know, collaborate with them. And so I'd reach out to them and then do a project and, and, and you know, I'm a big, big proponent of uh, under-promising, over-delivering, especially in those initial, you know, relationship-building projects. Um, and then they're happy with the results. And then that same marketing firm will have, 30 other different companies they represent, and they might have other opportunities down the line where I don't have to work or bid or do anything. They're like, hey, we also have this project for Hilton or we have this project for whoever, and they'll just come to me with work, which is great. Um, but in terms of how that initially starts, um, oftentimes if it's a cold uh, pitch, and what I mean by cold pitches means that you don't have a relationship. So it's not like like people at Dell, like I text them, and I'm like, hey, this is going to be a great idea. We should do something. Like that's a relationship that's built up. That's a a, a hot a hot pitch because it's it's something that that's uh, a relationship that's been developed. But for the cold pitches, one of my favorite platforms to use is actually LinkedIn. And I think it's a platform, a social media platform, that a lot of entrepreneurs um, negate or don't even think about. And mm. what LinkedIn does for me is that it allows me to cut through the noise of, you know, saying you come across a company you wanna work with and you pitch them on Instagram. Well, again, whoever is running the Instagram account, if the company is big enough, is not gonna be the actual company you're pitching. It's gonna be some other small marketing firm and generally some person that is, you know, the uh, entry level position handling a social media account, right? Um, So they're not the ones that control the purse strings. Where with LinkedIn, I can sit there and say, okay, who's the marketing manager or the project manager or the social media manager for Samsung North America? or for, uh, for Dell um, in the U.S. or for Garmin or for whoever it is. And then um, through a paid account with LinkedIn, which costs a certain amount of dollars a month, um, you have the ability to send X number of these cold emails, I think they call them in-mails, um, where I then pitch this a very light pitch, very soft um, uh, soft pitch of this is who I am, this is what I do, this is why I like what you're doing and I'm interested in doing something. Um, and then see if I get a response and then usually that will build the relationship from there. And that's something that a lot of people can do. And I think a lot of people don't do because they are too afraid of rejection or maybe they yeah. uh, spend too much time pitching companies on Instagram, which aren't even actually, like I said, talking to the companies or talking to someone that cares or, or knows, you know, uh, that just decides who does campaigns, um, things like that. I think so often when it comes to, um, marketing, it's really about networking. It's about talking to the right people at the right time. And I think that plays a, a quite a big role. Yeah. Um, another small little tidbit, just a tip for the, you guys that are watching or listening is that it really pays dividends to understand the um, the fiscal calendar of the companies you're working with, especially the bigger companies. Um, little companies, it doesn't matter as much, but the big companies, it's huge. And what I mean by that is that if you pitch a great idea to a company in the middle of their fiscal quarter, oftentimes they have already expensed all of their income, um, their, their budget for that fiscal quarter. But if you understand where their fiscal quarter ends and when they begin, those are the two best times for me to pitch either at the very end, which means that a company or a department has um, income they have to spend before the fiscal quarter ends or they won't get that same amount or more the next fiscal quarter, um, then they're eager to, to, to say yes, since they have to expense the money or the very beginning, that means the next fiscal quarter has started, which means that they now have a, a larger budget to work with. And so knowing those fiscal quarters, having them in my calendars for each of the big companies I work with gives me a much better idea of when to pitch companies ideas, not just coming up with a great idea, because timing is also quite imperative, uh, almost as imperative as talking to the right people when it comes to doing those types of projects or, or trying to dip your toes into the marketing space of, um, you know, photography or or video work.
2: God, that was another one of those moments that you should go and rewind and <laughs> re-watch there. Wow, that is just some cracking information and, and tips there. Just absolutely cracking. Um what so when when you are going for those uh in particular those cold pitches um to to companies, are are you or do you typically just go down the, sh- the straight kind of, uh, you know, just call it an email for now kind of route, but f- perhaps through LinkedIn, uh, or or do you have a a um, um kind of a you know a p- PDF, let's say of. Something you are, you're actually pitching? Do you go that kind of extra mile? Or something um, to send them? I, I'm struggling to think of the word that I want to use for it right now. But
1: it's yeah. The, I think the correct term, for, at least for the industry, is pitch deck. Um, Thank and you. so, <laughs> yeah. I mean that. So that's typically stage two. So the problem okay. with cold the problem with cold emails is that you have to assume that other people are smart enough to try and to be doing the same thing, right? So. If I'm pitching a, a social media manager or a marketing manager for a company, I had to assume they're getting a bunch of other emails from other people doing similar things. And the reason I have to take that into account is because if you said... It's like, it's like applying for a job, right? And having a resume that's like 15 pages long compared to having something like a cover letter that gives you a summation of exactly who you are and what you're doing. You don't want to give someone you don't know or don't have a relationship too much stuff to chew on because they're busy. They have other things to do. They're probably looking at other pitches or other ideas um, or they have other time constraints. And so for that first initial email is really just a meet and greet. It is a, hi, so-and-so, my name is Colby Brown. This is who I am. I've been in the industry for this long. I work for National Geographic and these other companies. I have a really, you know, solid social media following with X number of whatever it is. Um, I came across you releasing X number of you know X projects. Um, I think this is very fascinating for you know A, B, and C reasons. Um, I, you know, personally, I do a lot of traveling around the world to very exotic and beautiful locations. There might be some synergistic opportunities for me, for us to work together uh, to help promote some of the amazing products and services that you guys are offering. I've already, you know, sometimes if it's a company that I already own their own products I've purchased with my own money, I'll include that in there. Like I'm letting them know who I am, what I have to offer, why I'm interested and an inkling of what I want to do. You know, if you are interested, you know, let's have a conversation about that. And if they respond, which often they do now, but early in my career, they didn't as often. um, Then that next step, they're like, yeah, this sounds great. What did you have in mind? And then I'll put together a professional, more polished pitch deck using things like canva.com or something like that, which are really easy for people that aren't into graphic design to put together a, a, a proper plan and idea that I want to pitch including budgets and all sorts of other stuff. But it's very presumptuous to think that, um, A, they want to work with you from the beginning and, and B, that they're going to look through everything you send them on that first initial email. Um, and so I try to keep, like I said, keep it short and sweet, couple sentences, maybe two paragraphs max for that first initial cold email, and then go from there. And like I said, early on for you guys that are listening, expect. Uh, rejection, or at least the worst than rejection, is silence. Um, <laughs> don't take it personally. Business is not personal. Um, that's another tip for you guys. Uh, separate your own personal anxieties with the whole business side of things. Um, but just keep plugging away. And and when you do get a success and someone reaches back out and says, this is interesting, then you know work on putting together you know, pitch decks. You can do research on Google how to put together a pitch deck or what's, it, what's important in it. Uh, make it visually uh, inspiring. Because, you know, whether you're doing video work or photography work, we're visual medians. And I can't tell you how many people or how many photographers, videographers pitch decks or websites or things that I've seen that are absolutely atrocious. I don't understand that. Um, you should definitely play that up and 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 try to inspire with the stuff that you're trying to pitch, especially if you're trying to get paid. Um, but yeah, that, that generally, like I said, long-winded answer that comes down to the second phase of things um, rather yeah. than um, setting too much information up first and getting a bit too, uh, presumptuous that you're going to get hired for the job before you even apply for it.
2: I, f- I think the, um, the recruitment analogy there, or, you know, a- applying for a job is, is spot on for it. You know, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've had to review CVs and things like that in, in past, past, past work. And you're absolutely right. You do, you read that cover letter first. And if that doesn't sell you, you, you don't even look you at You don't even get to the CV. <laughs> you know, it never gets that far necessarily. Um, but if it does, oh, that's great. Move on to the next stage. That might be, you know, in typical recruitment, that'd be a phone screen. Then you move on to yep. a face to face interview. And then you're kind of on, it's exactly the same kind of idea there. And if you can yep. use that as an analogy to get your head around why you do these type of things, that that, that that's gold. You'll love it. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. It's, Absolutely. Well,
1: I think I think whether it's stuff like that or even other nuances within business, I think creatives have a tendency to overcomplicate things. Like yeah. the core fundamentals of business mm. really haven't changed in the last couple hundred years. There's new technologies, there's new things that make certain things or communication or our ability to create easier, but those core fundamentals are not overly complicated. And I think that where a lot of creatives struggle is, as I mentioned before, they either automatically look at the business side of things in this negative light, or they overcomplicate it because they take everything personally. And I think that again, is is a, a trying to figure out how to compartmentalize and separate those out allows you to at least have the opportunity to think more logically um, and break down as we just, you know, as, as you just um, uh, mentioned about what I was talking about with the resume stuff, like that's logical sense, right? If I'm reaching out to a company, I don't want to you know, throw up all over them with all the stuff that I want to do because they're not going to pay attention. Like in your, in a logical mind, that makes sense. But if you're overly excited and you're like, I deserve this and all this is going to happen, like you might send them a, you know, five chapter, you know, email about, you know, what you want to do and why you're great and all these other things. Like... We're, we're not entitled to anything i think that's a big challenge with yeah. uh, the current state of photography is that you think just because you have talent or you can take good images or video that you deserve either accolades or likes or shares or to be hired for jobs and that's not necessarily how it works um you also have to have the you know business acumen and you have to you have to be able to negotiate and have relationships and and, and develop those over time and the business side of things is logical it's 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 analytical um Hmm. and there's ways to be creative within that but um i i I, at least i personally have found separating the uh the personal attachment to uh what i feel is my uh my my skills or the quality of my work early on in my career has been a blessing um that has allowed me to sidestep all the what i consider high school drama from uh that that phase of of this type of work and and to to not take it personally when I get rejected early on, or or when I, you know, didn't get a job, or when social things didn't do great on social media, like it just takes time. Um, and and having that right mindset, I think, helps us think logically about how the business side of things work, hmm. which, like yeah.
0: I said, just really hasn't changed over the millennia. Yeah, yeah, the so, rejection yeah. thing is a it's does, it does definitely a thing. I, mean, I think both Nick and me, you know, I used to be a session musician for like twenty five years before before I even you know started uh, in professional photography, as such. And you really get used to rejection really quickly in the music <laughs> industry. And it's, you know, it's just, it's basically the, that's the status quo. And you just, um, you know, perseverance is the other thing that, you know, perseverance and follow-up, as I always say, is, you know, is extremely important. The amount of times that things have come out of, um, follow-ups, for example, where the initial response was no response. <laughs> you know, yeah. And then like, you know, a few weeks later, you just, you follow it up and you go like, Hey, um. You know, I was just wondering, you know, whether you had a, had time to think about this, blah, blah, you know, you copy the old, the, the previous email in, and, um, and very often I find that that then, you know, conjures up a response um, and, and sometimes sure. a positive response, which is great, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and if you, if you think about that again, from a logical standpoint, it's like, or, or from an emotional standpoint, like I send this out to someone. They don't send back, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with my work? I'm doubting everything. I'm never going to follow back up. When in reality, that person's busy. Maybe they wanted to or they didn't or they forgot or they didn't see your email or whatever it is you provide that extra opportunity to kind of follow up and restart the conversation. Um, you don't want to be like that psychotic, you know, uh, you know, significant X where like <laughs> two Every days day. later, you're like, dude, what's your problem, man? Why <laughs> yeah. don't you like my work? Uh, Why did not yeah, you like hire it. me? And then like, three days later, you're like, I'm sorry, I was drinking. Like it just doesn't work out. Yeah. No, I You're hundred percent right. I mean, it, sure. the, the the networking side is, is huge. It's, like I said, it's about who, you know, and it's about timing and, yeah. and being able to follow up and having those interesting conversations and including, you know, with people that you've had success with, right? So a company that I've worked with, um, again, like Dell's a great example. Like I work with them multiple times throughout the year, like maybe six months will go by and, and I've been busy and they've been busy. Like I'll just shoot an email and say, Hey, just checking in. How are you guys doing? You know, you guys got so many great stuff coming out. Like, you're giving a reason to be present in the conversation. Yeah. Those are positive forms of communication um, that I think can be very advantageous and, and is, is is key on that whole networking side of the the business side of photography.
0: It's very easy to forget that you know, especially with emails and everything. Of course, you know we're in a time where a lot of it is like is, is written communication is like emails, uh, social media, you know messaging, whatever. but it's, it's, sometimes it's easy to forget that at the other end there's still a human being there. And everything yep. that applies to, uh, you know, human to human conversation still applies. It's just the delivery format is different. So, you know, it's once, once you kind of, once you sort of remove yourself from the initial kind of emotional response and you kind of realize that that's actually what's going on, it's much easier to then go, okay, well, you know, maybe they didn't have any time to, to email me back. I'm just going to shoot them another email. You know, I mean, it's easy then it's just like, you know, in texting, I don't know, sometimes I text my wife and I don't get a response because she's actually <laughs> driving and she can't text back. <laughs> Yeah, you're yeah. not getting a divorce just because you don't no. respond back, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, yeah, you know, that's the thing. I mean, just, that's a typical situation. You send a text, you know, I sent a text to my wife. She's in the car, she's driving. Clearly, she can't text back. You know, an hour later, she's arrived at the superstore, done all the shopping. Like two hours later, she would have just forgotten the fact that there was, uh, you know, I mean, that's just normal and that's just life and that's just how things go. And so, you know, follow ups, it's not If you're key. the
2: one, if you're the one instigating something, if you're the one sending that pitch, you're the one with the emotional attachment to that action. Yeah. Not the person receiving it. They yep, are no in any way. Yeah. And sometimes it takes being told hmm. that for it to just click and to to realise because, oh my God. And it, this applies to everything in, in your personal life, work, business, whatever it might be. But it does, sometimes it does take someone hmm. to just tell you and just just Get rid of that little, um, you know, kind of screen that you've got over it that just lifts away, and you suddenly, you know, we've used this word a couple of times today that it's it's freeing. You go, oh my god! It just opens up this whole new world of possibilities for you. Yeah. Absolutely, and of course, it's yeah. difficult for any creative,
0: I think, to yeah. um, to separate themselves from their art. You know, no matter whether it's like music or, or photography or whatever it may be, um, because you invest so much of yourself into it. And of course, if somebody rejects it or like is that even worse? Doesn't respond at all. It's easy to take that as a reflection on on yourself. Are uh, you? Yeah. 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 Hundred percent. Yeah.
1: No. Yeah. I, I. Yeah. I. I. Hundred percent agree. And and it's. I think you're right. I mean, I, I think that. I think people do need to 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 hear that to to, kind of remind themselves that, you know, other people aren't gonna care about your stuff as much as you. Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's, it's just the reality. <laughs> yeah. I mean my wife doesn't care about my work as much as I do. Like how am I expect some random stranger halfway across the world working in a, you know, fortune 500 company too. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It, it's a, it, again, uh, as you reiterated, it, it's a freeing experience. Like people aren't gonna care about your stuff as much as you want mm-hmm. them to. And part of your job, especially if you're trying to do this from a financial standpoint, Mm. is educating people on the value you bring to the table. Yeah, And if you just assume that people understand or appreciate your value, that's what we call entitlement. Mm. And you are not entitled to get any job. You are not entitled to get accolades. You're not entitled for people to love your stuff. Sometimes it requires that extra work Through the right channels to be able to educate people through these opportunities to be like this is why you should hire me and this is why it's good and i'm not taking it personally that i have to explain it to you um but in order to have that conversation you have to kind of separate your ego out of it and for some photographers strangely um that's a challenge I, i i don't get it because if you think about it, like we're probably past the stage of having like another Annie Leewood, certainly having another Ansel Adams yeah. like 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, like whenever I'm dead, like people probably are never going to remember my name in terms of the photo industry. And I'm OK mm. with that. Like I we we, we have to separ- we, we have to be OK with that notion that um, that that. That we, we don't have those types of people. The industry is different than it was 50 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, and and like I said, again, that's freeing. It's freeing not to have the ego tied to it. It's freeing just to do this because I love it, not because yeah. I need someone else to tell me that I'm good at it. Um, there, there, there's lots of
0: benefits to having that type of mindset. I mean, that has actually, for, I think, both for, you know, both for Nick and I, um, that has really been um, our experience also like through the whole pandemic like over the last you know 60 mm-hmm. months because for me for example i you know normally i specialize in shooting people as in like with a camera um <laughs> you know and, and uh you know the headshot business wasn't exactly flourishing throughout lockdown you know when, <laughs> when obviously you can't get another human being in front of your lens um and it, so, makes that a <laughs> yeah, it makes it a challenge yeah it's a challenge I, mean, I don't have a lens long enough for that <laughs> to work but you know and the other thing is of course conferences which is just something that i used to shoot a lot before the pandemic um, also they're not happening. So, you know, immediately it was a matter of like, okay, well, we're going to do some other things, you know, let's find other stuff to do and, um, and, you know, to not only keep, keep ourselves like creatively, you know, fulfilled and everything, but also of course you then, it's an opportunity to look at other avenues and changing things around and it's easy then cause you can then take the bits that you didn't like about what you did before and you can change them and you've got a perfect opportunity. And sometimes it just takes a full on, you know bus stop to basically you know kickstart you into that in, sure in a sense. absolutely so, yeah i mean we've you know and a lot of the stuff that that nick and i've uh, worked on like over the last um 18 months we've done literally for for no other reason other than we thought it was a good idea and that was it you know like literally um there was no like i mean even this podcast there was like there was no there was no th- no thought about monetizing it, anything like that. That wasn't why we started doing it at all. It was just like we literally just thought, "Ah, this might be a good idea. Let's do that."
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, again, it's freeing. I yeah, I, I, sure. I can't, you know, I keep saying that, you know, repeating that over and over again. But like, you're you're you've broken free from those shackles of like I have to do this for X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Like the giving lens, I started it because I wanted to exactly not because you know I haven't made a penny off of it. Like I pay other employees, I don't make any money off of it. Um, like it was a whole meant to make a difference and to do some good. It was a, a, a it was a passion project, and I think yeah. that if you if you ask a lot of the the big photographers, at least from the last generation of, of people out there, vast majority of them started the career on these ideas of of either passion projects or of, of just doing something because you thought it was a good idea, not because you were like I'm going to make a ton of money doing this or yeah. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And then out of that. Opens up other doors or windows, which may yeah. provide some new revenue streams or things. But that's not the reason you do it. And in, in doing so, you create a a structure um, for either the project or the entity or whatever it is that allows for exponential more flexibility yeah. um, and, and and enjoyment out of it as well. You're not necessarily tied to those other things of like, oh, I have to this, I have to sell this, I have to sell ad space, like whatever it is. Um, those you know may come down the line, but at least for that initial inception idea. Um, it opens up those those doors, which is is phenomenal. Yeah. It
0: helps you be more creative, in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Russell Colby, what have you got planned uh, in like in the next few months or of the next year?
1: Yeah, so I have a handful of projects that I'm working on putting together. Um, right now, I'm actually trying to see if I can make a project work in Zambia in early September uh, to a place called South Wanga National Park, which is uh, one of the highest concentration of leopards in Africa, and it's kind of like a Bit of a hidden gem, kind of almost like what Botswana was uh, like 20, 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So working on that, um, I'm going to be up in Italy and the Dolmites in October, um, sans a, a lockdown um, uh, for a workshop, which should be great. Um, and then early November, I'll be up in Alaska, in Haynes, Alaska, photographing bald eagles for the first start of the month. And then assuming... Uh, Japan doesn't go crazy with COVID and the Olympics. Um, I'll be in Japan to shoot fall colors just before the U.S. Thanksgiving. Um, And that's kind of rounding out my year, at least in terms of general plans. Um, I'm going to spend a bit of time here in this home studio doing some more tutorials and post-processing, things like that, just to kind of round out the uh, digital education space, um, see how that thing progresses over time and kind of build into 2022 and handful of trips certainly around the world workshops all, all sorts of other stuff that I'm you know excited about some stuff that's already set in uh, in motion some that are already planned um, but of course waiting just to see how the next you know few months play out before I I start really solidifying some of those details um, just in case uh, you know we we have another resurgence or something else happens or I, I I'm I'm trying to be as flexible as possible with also trying to plan out usually I'm I'm booked out like two years in advance and now it's kind of like Six to eight months is like a realistic time frame. And yeah. even then sometimes things happen, as you know. So um yeah, I guess we'll see how it goes. But uh, that's that's at least the next six months. Hmm.
0: How do you manage like family time and and being away so much? How, how do you balance that up? Well, the interesting thing is that when I'm home, like I'm home. I'm home 24
1: hours a day. Like I, I um most of my my good friends are all other photographers. No one lives around me. I have um we live out in the sticks out here in Eastern Pennsylvania. My, my parents live close. We see them every once in a while. Um, but for the most part, like I'm, I'm home, I'm, I'm here all the time. Like I don't go out, you know, drinking with buddies. I don't go to concerts. I don't do the things like I'm either traveling, you know, around the world in some exotic location or I'm home, you know, in my studio or in my pajamas or hanging out with a family. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of helps because I like a lot, you know, a lot of people think like, oh, you travel so much. Like that's true. But for people that have a standard, you know, eight to five or nine to five job, like you're gone for the vast majority of the day, uh, especially if you have kids and like you're seeing them for a few hours, um, but it's not the same thing. And so like we homeschool our son here mm-hmm. in the US because um, because we live remotely. So my son learns from school, uh, is takes school here at home. Uh, my wife is his teacher. Um, and so we're, we're constantly doing stuff together. And so I think that helps, um, as I mentioned before. They also piggyback off of some of the projects I work on around the world. So they just came to Iceland. I've taken them to the Caribbean a number of times, and Central and South America. I think maybe Africa. I'll do another year or two, depending how things work out. But constantly trying to show the world, uh, you know, my son, the world a bit a uh, bit more, and let that be a bit of his educational classrooms as well. And that gives us more opportunity to spend time together in some cool, pretty amazing experiences that a lot of other people don't have the opportunity to have. Um, and so we make it work. Um, But yeah, it's, it's a challenge, you know, the, on a given year, four to six months out of the year, my, my wife is kind of like a single mom. Um, and so it takes, you know, having that, that support and that understanding from your significant other, uh, makes a huge difference. Um, and I was very honest from the beginning, from our first date, uh, which was 12 years ago, 13 years ago now, exactly who I was, what I'd plan on doing, what I was doing. You know, I, I laid it all out on the table from the very beginning. Uh, which I think definitely helped because a lot of relationships before then failed because maybe <laughs> I didn't do that or probably for many different reasons. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're away like that, like it's like, you know, having a family member in the army or in a, you know any mm-hmm. other job that travels quite a bit, um, it requires, you know, resilience, communication and openness and understanding and support um, and spending as much time as you guys can together when you're together. And I think that's key. Um, and, and something that we've, we've continued to work on over the years, um, as my companies have grown, you know, I used to have a bad habit of constantly being on my phone, like not on the phone, but like responding to emails and doing all sorts of other stuff, like 24 hours a day. Um, and that was problematic because I was home, but I wasn't really here, you know, Mm -hmm. um, wasn't paying attention. And so having, having those conversations with my wife or, or my son, I, I distinctly remember when he was like three or four and we were in Colorado, I lived in Boulder, Colorado at the time. And uh, we're, we're sitting in the living room and I'm playing with him, but I'm on my phone. And I was responding to an email or something and he walks over to me and he grabs the phone and he's three. So he's tiny. So he grabs the phone like this uh, very carefully. He grabs it and then walks over to the table across the room and puts it down and walks over and he goes, Dad, no more phone. And I was like, oh. broke my heart and I was like I am a horrible father um and so it was little moments like that that really just opened my eyes to to again prioritize things and and so when I'm home like I got to do work I have things to get done but when we have time together like that's my purpose I'm not going to be answering calls I'm not going to be responding to emails I'm going to try to stay off social media like I just want to be present um as much as I can and so uh, yeah we made it work um but it's it's certainly been a journey, definitely.
2: And I, I, I think yeah. um, from the way you've just described things there, I'm willing to bet, even though you are away several months of the year, you actually make it work better than many other couples out there, many other families. Um, you know, so many people, so many people I, I know, and myself included over, over the years. You know, you aren't in that moment. In fact, you're rarely in that moment. You know, you, you're always distracted by something else. I think we take it for granted. Um,
1: yeah. And I still struggle with it. There are times where I'm still like hyper obsessed over something happening or a new project launching or whatever it is. Um, but it's always good to be reminded of the significance of, of being present, whether it's for a family hmm. or whether it's for yourself to actually be there for the journey. I mean, I, I in a similar vein, but not through social media, when early in my career, it was something that I also noticed just through photography is that. I was experiencing so much of my travel around the world in these amazing locations and these amazing experiences that a lot of people would literally die for, like want to have these these opportunities. And I'd see everything through the blinders of my camera. And it was very limiting. It was, you know, I'm there to obviously capture something or document or film something, and I needed to make sure that I was obviously doing that, but I wasn't building in time to actually just enjoy the experience, to be present mm-hmm. in the moment, to see a beautiful sunset set over Antarctica or, you know, the, the, the beautiful light, you know, filtering through the jungles as this with these silverbacks. Like I was just so hyper obsessed over, you know, getting the shot. Um, nowadays, you know, 15 years in, I spend... The vast majority of my time out in the field with my camera actually away, um, which has helped me not only appreciate those moments and the journey and those experiences, but also again be much more pointed in terms of when I choose to take my camera out, when I choose to mm-hmm. photograph something, uh, which means that they're a bit more special and they're a bit more, a bit more effort and thoughts put into them. Uh, but also, I don't have like ten thousand other images I don't have to go through and <laughs> yeah. and cool now <laughs> because I was you know trying to view everything through my viewfinder and and get all the 10,000 other shit images that I didn't need rather than the couple hundred that are, are actually important for whatever I was doing. Um, and so it just it, the conversation just reminded me of that is that I, I've suffered through that a couple of times, one through social media, just in general with being attachment to our phones like most of us have, but also just through being creative and, and hyper-focusing on um, photography and videography and um, missing out on some of those ex- experiences of, you know, like I said, just feeling the wind hit your face in a cool, amazing location that you might not ever experience again, yeah. um, as something that I, I try
0: to, um, never take for granted again. It's, that really very much reminds me of, um, like when I first got started in concert photography, you know, cause I, I used to basically, I don't know, I used to, I used to shoot so many frames, um, throughout a performance. It was, it was unreal. And you'd literally come home with like eight, 8,000 images, you know? Um, but you completely miss, in a sense, you miss what's happening on stage. Um, sure. and so, you know, over time and with experience, I shoot a lot less, but strangely the images are a lot better, you know, so sure. it's, it's like, because you, you start to develop a sense for the key moments, you know, and, and just actually by watching the artists on stage for a bit, you get a real sense as to who they are, what they like as performers. And, you know, with, um, you know over two decades of, of performance experience myself, I kind of get an idea as to what somebody's like like whether you know the guitarist is fixed on a spot or whether he's like a person who takes up the whole real estate on the stage or you know what kind of gesturing the, the singer is is doing or whatever you kind of get a sense for the person and that then basically informs you as to what the key shots are that you need to get you know and the way you want to capture that performance. Rather than just sitting there on like auto drive, going <laughs> <laughs> you know, anyway, before you know it, it's like you haven't seen any of the performance. You really haven't got a clue as to what they were like as a band or as a as a performer, and um and 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 you're stuck with like you know eight thousand images that you could have to go through and then weed out. Well, this just takes way too much time. Too, way too lazy. <laughs> so true. So <laughs> true. <do> <laughs> so we've come to the end of Camera Shake Podcast Episode sixty seven. Colby, thank you so much for being our guest on the show. It was super entertaining. And of course we've learned a ton. I hope uh, our listeners and viewers out there have too. And remember, if you are listening to the audio version of this uh, of this podcast, then you can hop over to YouTube if listening to our sultry voices isn't enough, but you want to see our beautiful faces in full Technicolor, you can do that. Uh, having said that, if you don't know, and if you have made it through to the end of this episode, first of all, well done. But you can also hop over to our website, Camerashakepodcast.com, where you can join us in the uh, Camerashake community. That'd be super awesome. You see a button, click on it, put your stuff in. We'll send you a newsletter once in a while. Um, We'll promise we won't bombard you with stuff. But it'd be awesome for you to be part of the community. Anyway, that being said, we'll see you again next week for another episode of the Camerashake podcast.